May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like you to take a moment with me and walk down memory lane. Now, these are your own memory lanes, none of which we have in common, but we have a common thing to think about. I want you to think about your favorite teacher, whether you were in elementary school, high school, university, or maybe you're a lifelong learner, as most of us are, and it's a class we've recently taken. Think about that teacher, that favorite teacher of yours. Mine is Mr. Hashhagen. He was my sixth grade teacher, and he was amazing. He was the first man who was a teacher that I'd ever had in my life, and that was just fascinating all by itself. In sixth grade, what his classroom was like was unlike any other class. And that is, let me check, okay, mic's on. And that is because in his class, we could walk around. We didn't have to stay in our seats. Now, this was before we did any innovations in the classroom. So it was really quite remarkable. This was one of the few classrooms where my brother, who was a high energy child, shall we say, could really do well. He would let us take our books and sit around by the window or by the door or on the floor if we wanted to, as long as we got our work done. But we had two warnings. First time we were getting too loud, he would say, please quiet down. The second warning is, quiet or you'll be back in your chairs. The third was not a warning, it was an instruction. He would take that long pointy rod that had the rubber end, slam it against the chalkboard, caught all the attention, and he said, get in your seats. And then he would find the driest piece of history ever known to man and read it in a monotone. It was dreadful. Needless to say, it didn't take us long to learn to keep our voices down so we could walk around. But then I want you to think about your least favorite teacher. As they say, he has a name that will not be named. But for the point of the sermon, we will call him Mr. C. Now, Mr. C taught me chemistry in high school, and it started out like this. Roll call, everyone get in your places. Let me tell you something. When you come into my classroom, you will come in quietly and you will sit immediately. I will take roll. If you are not in your place and quiet, I will mark you absent. I do not care whether you are here or not. Most of you are in this class because you are straight A students. I want you to know that that ends here. The best you will do is get a B plus. I give one A per year. To earn an A, you must have a 94% or better. Here is your syllabus, which he passed out on the first day of class. He said, if you'll turn to page three, you will note the days of your exams. Those days do not move. If we do not cover that information, it does not matter. Your test is already prepared. Make sure you are prepared for it. His exams were legendary. They were filled with chemical equations derived from narrative descriptions of chemical reactions. Balancing atoms on both sides of the arrow, he'd throw in a quadratic equation if he had fun and then some random questions. His exams were so tough 
that even if you got the answer right, if you didn't show your work, label reactants products and coefficients properly, you did not get full credit for the answer. And you never knew what day of the week his weekly quiz would happen. There was never a multiple choice. Extra credit only if you had a B or better, otherwise you should just study more, and once you got a B, then you could earn extra credit. Well, hmm, he hadn't met me. And he hadn't met my friend Debbie. We decided we were going to force him to give two A's that year. We discovered he pulled all his random questions from the footnotes. That was pretty sneaky, but we figured it out. And when I read this passage, I thought about Mr. C. His motives were suspect, and I'm not sure that he had the best interest of most of his students in mind. He had a particular agenda. He had little intention of us getting the questions right or learning from our errors. He was just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These Pharisees were not interested in who Jesus was as a person or as the Messiah. They learned their enemies, the Sadducees, the temple priests, had lost their battle with Jesus and were put to shame. Maybe, just maybe, they could keep Jesus in his place and maintain their power and superiority, much like Mr. C. Their lawyers questioned Jesus. Lawyers, persons skilled with words and interrogation, these were authorities of the law. Teacher, they asked, which commandment in the law is the greatest? On the surface, it looks like they gave him a multiple choice. Now, it was a hard one. It wasn't like one of four. It seemed like it was one of 10, but actually, it was one of 613 commandments found in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Clearly a test of the 365 do nots and the 248 you must do commands to be faithful to the teaching of Moses. Jesus then responds to him from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 6.8, the passage which starts the Shema, the daily centerpiece of morning and evening prayer, in all of Judaism. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But it continues. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you wake up. Bind them as a sign upon your head. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In essence, he said, you already know. Then Jesus continues with another Torah passage from Leviticus. Now I realize when I say Leviticus, it's been weaponized to do great harm. And sometimes we get this Leviticus and we get this collective, <laughs> what you gonna say? Well, so then we throw it out. But it's worth reading because with all of its commands, it also says this. Leviticus 19:18 states, 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbor is built on the timelessness and character of God, not ourselves, our mood, our neighbor's behavior, but in the very nature of God. And that's pretty powerful. Now, I'm really fortunate to have two great neighbors. One who sometimes will get rid of the snow for me with his snowblower, and the other one, on the other hand, is the matriarch of the neighborhood, I would call her. She's Miss Virginia, and she's wonderful. She invites me to coffee, but she also reprimands me if she believes I'm out too late at night, which would be sundown. <laughs> so it's easy to love those neighbors. But Jesus isn't talking about our geographic neighbors. But he's talking that everyone is our neighbor. Everyone. That's not nearly so great. Because sometimes I'm not that great a neighbor. And in, on our best days and our worst days, sometimes we are fabulous. And I am the best neighbor in the world. For the whole world. I love everybody. I can't wait, wait to wake up. I want to pray for everybody. I'm excited to see everybody. And other days, it's like I fell off the wrong side of the bed, and I have to remember who we are as followers of Christ and love and receive love and give it. In answering the questions, Jesus returns them to their roots, reminding them of their heritage while being under Roman rule. It's not about money or power or privilege or even prestige. It's not about parsing one law over another, but it's about living a life that honors God. On these two commands hang all the law and prophets. In essence, if you get these two right, you're probably pretty close to getting the rest of them correct. And Jesus continues not only with his words, but with his life, embodying it in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to love God with all of oneself, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This isn't simply an easy choice. It's an ongoing commitment to follow our Lord. It's a decision that gets made over and over and over and over again to become more and more like the one who loved us first. Like the high school story, every day was committed to the goal. Debbie and I pushed each other, reminded each other, helped each other. In the end, we earned 93.496 and 93.497. 94 was the A. Yes, he was that petty. It took all the quizzes and the extra credits we had done for months for two measly points that pushed us into that A category, we maintained our streak and we broke his record of never giving more than one A. It's on our permanent record, which no one has ever asked about, but it seemed so important at the time. <laughs> Looking back, getting that A was easy compared to fully loving God and fully embracing my neighbor. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't important, but love always is. In the words of Reverend Dr. Speeder Scanielli, 
May God drive from our hearts the idols of this world and let us be free to serve God alone. And by loving our neighbor as ourselves, may we make his son's commandment of love the law that governs every aspect of our lives. Amen.